Thank you, Aubrey, for reading Hosea chapter 1. We are in our second week in this series. started last week, and uh, we're continuing right on today. And I don't know what you woke up uh, ready to hear as far as the sermon for this beautiful Sunday morning goes. Uh, but today we get to talk about judgment. So you knew this was coming because we're in the Minor Prophets. And uh, today is one of those days. And so we're going to be talking about uh, a heavy subject, a tough subject uh, today, talking about judgment, but we'll also talk about restoration. Uh, to get, uh, before we get to that, I wanted to give you some good news. Uh, before we talk about some of this heavy stuff, let's talk about some happy stuff. Next Sunday, we're going to have an experiment kind of going on here at the church, and I want to invite you to it. Next Sunday at 1045, we're going to try to have a social distancing service. So let me explain. We're going to be out in the parking lot. Uh, bring your own lawn chair. We'll have some chairs too. If you don't have a lawn chair, still come. We'll find you a place to sit because we got some chairs here at the church. And we'll be out in the parking lot. We'll all you know, sit six feet away from one another. And uh, we'll have a couple songs and I'll teach. And uh, we'll just have a, a service outside. And try to, you know, see, you know, ease us back into perhaps a coming season of getting back to uh, our regular services. This won't be as long as a regular service. It'll be outside, so it'll be a little shorter. Uh, there won't be any kids ministry or nursery ministry. You got to keep your youngins with you. Good luck on that, by the way. Just realize that means I have to somehow keep my youngins with me. So, um, yeah, I don't know what's going to happen there. But we will have, you know, the restrooms available inside, but everything else will take place outside and it'll be um, really safe and I think a really good time. If you are sick or scared to get sick, vulnerable to sickness, please feel free to pass on this. We will still have an online service for anyone to watch uh, in the safety of their homes. No problem there. So we won't leave you in the dust. You'll have something to watch on uh, Facebook and YouTube, which will be great. Um, and we'll just give this a shot. We uh, have checked the mandates and orders that this is good to go above board legally. And uh, our deacons are also cool with it um, after considering it. So this is going to be fun. We're going to start next Sunday trying to do at least one. We'll start with one. And if it goes well, we'll do more. Some services outside just right here in our parking lot. Lawn chairs guitars and a message and just see how it goes because we miss you we want to get back together and with some things currently opening back up it looks like for our size church this is a safe way to do it and so we'll give that a shot and see how it goes now back to Hosea Hosea chapter one last week we started this series kind of talked about how it was like almost the first day of class remember this talked about how like hey we're getting out the syllabus a little bit here's what we're going to learn about in the book of Hosea this intense, powerful, dramatic, yet beautiful, wonderful book in the Old Testament of our Bibles. It teaches us about four things mainly, and we break those down. We're going to break those down each week as we go through this book, line by line, verse by verse. We talked about how we're going to learn about Scripture. Hosea is all about the Word of the Lord. Not only does he teach the Word of the Lord, he lives and demonstrates the Word of the Lord through his family that we see in chapters 1 through 3. Uh, we learn about Jesus, right? Hosea is a type of Christ, and Hosea preaches the love of God, which is found ultimately in Christ. 
We learn about ourselves, our failures, our sins, and the judgment that we've incurred because of these things. But we've also discovered, especially last week, into the book, 14, chapter 14, verse 9, we learn about wisdom from Hosea, how to walk righteously once we repent of sin, and how to live according to the laws of God. Love him with all our heart and our neighbor as ourself. So today, we're going to focus in on two of those four, ourselves and Jesus. Particularly, when it comes to ourselves, we're going to look at the judgment we deserve and the judgment that God will give us if we don't repent. And then we'll also look at restoration, the restoration we don't deserve that Jesus will give us if we do repent. You see, ever since Genesis 3... When the serpent came and tempted us to sin against God and to break our ties with him, turn our back and walk away from all he's given us, we've had a relationship with God based on two mega themes. Our our relationship with God basically breaks down into two options, if you will, this idea of judgment or this idea of restoration. Believe it or not, it's not judgment and reward. That's kind of a myth. Um, Judgment and restoration, not judgment and reward. So judgment and reward, if we think along these lines, it's the idea where we get uh, religion from. You did good, God will give you good. That's not the story of the Bible. The story is God is good, so he'll give you good. Restoration is a lot different than reward. Reward carries these ideas of you know, you die and you, you know, said the right words at the right time, said the right prayer, did the right thing. So you get to go to this cloudy existence up in the sky with angel babies that have no clothes on, playing harps. That's your reward. That's actually not the ultimate story of the Bible. We do believe in heaven, though the Bible paints a much different picture than that of heaven. But ultimately, heaven is an intermediate state. Like if I was to die right now, I believe I would go to heaven in the sense that I'd go to the house of the Father to be in the presence of Jesus. However, by the end of the book, the end of Revelation, we don't see so much reward, though rewards are given, we see restoration. A new heaven and a new earth. It's like God is taking his people that have fallen from him. He's bringing them back to himself and recreating their lives and their world back to its original state where it was supposed to be the whole time, like back in the Garden of Eden as if we never fell. Really, this is the mega theme of the Bible is that you can come to God and receive judgment or you could be part of his glorious plan in the end to restore all things in what Revelation 21 calls the new Jerusalem, a new heaven, a new earth where all things are made new and really they're put right back to where they were supposed to be this entire time an endless life without sin and all of Jesus. That's the, that's the big picture of the Bible. Everyone will experience one or the other with God, judgment or restoration. Some who never believe will only receive judgment. Those who reject Christ, those who will not bow the knee now, will have to bow the knee later in judgment. And their relationship with God will consist only of judgment. For others there will be only restoration. I think of children who meet Jesus at a young age and begin following him through their early teenage years and and, and early college years, right? They've had mercy on them. They've heard the gospel. They've believed. They've been saved. And they never really, in one sense, incur a judgment, 
They're restored because their parents, perhaps, or some other teacher in the church serves them well, teaches them the gospel. They get on board and they live their whole lives towards that restoration God is ultimately providing in the end. Some will experience judgment and restoration. And that's the characters in our story today. They will live against the will of God. They will fight the will of God. They will disobey God. God will send judgment. He promises judgment. And yet for some, that judgment will open their eyes. And they will fear the Lord, turn from sin, believe in Him, and start on a path to restoration. God's always willing for restoration. And some get to restoration through judgment. In fact, that's really what's going on with the original audience of Hosea chapter 1, which is a place called Judah. So remember, in uh, the book of, uh, I believe it's 1 Kings, remember around that time, that historical period, after King Solomon, the, I believe it was King Rehoboam, split the nation of Israel, two parts. Got the northern kingdom, which is typically just called Israel. In the book of Hosea, it's often called Ephraim. Then you got the southern kingdom, a place called Judah, right? In the first few chapters, Hosea is preaching and prophesying against Israel, but it's now written down. You say, so he prophesied it. Why do he then write it down? Well, after preaching it, and condemning northern Israel for their sins and promising them judgment is to come for their sin, Judah started following suit. They started committing the same sins as northern Israel, and thus they were going to suffer the same fate. And he didn't want that, so he writes this down, and he's delivering this to Judah, their leaders and their people. Right? And basically what he's doing with these first few chapters is telling Judah what he told Israel, that because of their sin, there would be great judgment, judgment. However, that at the end of that judgment, for many, for some, it is promised that restoration would come. It would come because of the judgment, almost as a result of the judgment, it would come even though there would be judgment, that there was judgment for sin, and through that this nation, the nation of Judah, as well as the nation of Israel, as well as even all Gentiles who believe, will have restoration. So chapter 1 is about the pain of judgment, and yet it is about the pleasure of restoration. It is about the, the, the fear of judgment, and yet it is about the fearlessness that will come in restoration. It is about the drama of judgment, and yet it is about the freedom of knowing we serve a God that's ultimately going to restore all things, that, that determined to restore all things, that wants restoration for all of us who call ourselves his people. We're going to see that play out today. See, I say play out because Hosea not only teaches this, he lives this. You might remember uh, from last week, we talked about how not only did he predict things, but he kind of played them out. He, he, he demonstrated them. God called him last week to marry a prostitute. So the preacher marries the prostitute, and that is a symbol of God making a covenant with unfaithful people. 
God's faithful love towards unfaithful people. So Hosea takes to himself a wife named Gomer. She's unfaithful to him, like to the max, and he still sticks with her, stays with her, and loves her. And this shows off the great love of God. Hosea 1-2 talks about this. Won't dive real deep back into this since we talked about it last week, but it says, The beginning of the word of the Lord... The word of the Lord came to Hosea, go take unto thee a wife of whoredoms, children of whoredoms. The land has committed great whoredoms departing from the Lord. So he does, and he loves them, even though they're basically cheating on God with the gods of uh, the Assyrians, an unholy place they made an unholy alliance with. Part of that alliance being you got to worship Baal and do all the pagan rituals that come with it. This week, we're going to learn what happens next. He marries Gomer. He's got faithful love for an unfaithful wife, and now they're going to have children. And God is going to direct Hosea to give these kids very disturbing first names, very controversial, very uh, horrific first names. And just like his marriage to Gomer, this will demonstrate to the community a very difficult aspect of their current situation and relation with God. That is the judgment of God on them for their worship of Baal, for their unfaithfulness. So we see this start playing out with the first son in verses 3 through 4. And later, towards the end of the chapter, we'll see that even though There are three children with these three crazy names about the truth of God's dramatic justice that Hosea is still going to stay a father to them, just like he's still a husband to Gomer. And thus, he is still going to raise them with a hope and a future, and the chapter will end with a promise of a hope and a future for us, a future restoration. But before we get to restoration, let's jump into those verses we mentioned and, and see aspects of God's judgment. In fact, the names of these kids tell us about God's judgment and what God's judgment is like. So we start with a kid named Jezreel. Jezreel, in verse 3 through 5, this has to do with the vengeance of God. God's judgment is a vengeance judgment, is revenge for what has been done to his glory and the people he loves. We see this in 3, 4, and 5. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, which conceived and bare a son. And the Lord said to him, to Hosea, call his name Jezreel. For yet a little while, and I will, keyword, avenge the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu, and will cause to cease the kingdom of the house of Israel. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Now, this does not strike us like it struck them. Jezreel is not a word we use every day, here every day. This does not bring tears to our eyes like it would theirs. This does not strike fear in our hearts like it would of theirs. This is not something that makes us want to wretch and throw up like it would them. Quite literally, when he names his kid Jezreel. He names his kid after one of the bloodiest battlefields in Israel's history. This would be, and I'm not trying to make light or in any way be insensitive, but this is to give you the full punch of this. This would be like naming your kid Pearl Harbor. 
This would be like naming your son 9-11. That's exactly what this would be like. To name your child Jezreel would be unthinkable. It would make people choke. It would make people run. It is just, it would make question marks galore in the minds of all his friends and family. This is a severe name with a severe meaning. And what it means is God's vengeance. It's talking about God's vengeance. It says here, I'll avenge the blood of Jezreel on the house of Jehu. So as he names this kid Jezreel, everyone knows that's a symbol that God is revisiting whatever happened in Jezreel. You say, well, what happened in Jezreel? Who's this guy Jehu? Well, let's do a little history lesson. You can find this in 2 Kings 9. Basically, after the nation split into Israel and Judah, what we find is there's this really wicked line of kings in the northern kingdom, Israel. Starts with a guy named Jeroboam, ends with a guy named Ahab, who married a uh, crazy lady named Jezebel. And they ruled in the most wicked possible ways. And so God, obsessed with stopping all these violent acts that they were doing and wicked deeds that they were promoting in his kingdom, says it's time for them to go, to put a stop to them. And God comes to Elisha and tells Elisha to go to Jehu to anoint him as king. And his first job as God's chosen king is to assassinate Ahab and Jezebel. Now, if you're new to the Bible, you're new to Christianity, welcome, glad you're here. I understand that this might be confusing for you because mostly you've probably heard that our God is a God of love. That is true. First John 4, 8, God is love. That might be confusing to you because I just said he did tell a guy to assassinate King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. But if you knew King Ahab and his wife Jezebel, you would wonder why the Lord of love perhaps didn't assassinate them sooner. Because these are not people who are just non-believers. They are not people who are skeptics or have some intellectual theories that keep them from fully trusting God. These are not people who are disobeying the Sabbath laws or the dietary restrictions laid down in Leviticus. Jezebel and Ahab are people who murdered in cold blood just for more land that they didn't need. They would literally throw children into fires, little children sacrificing them to their gods so that their gods would give them more rain, more crops, and thus just more money. These were some of the most wicked deeds imaginable. So God puts a stop to this through a guy named Jehu was to come to take them down. It was a military operation to restore peace to those who were innocent in Israel. And Jehu did this in 2 Kings. And a piece of this was done in Jezreel. And for a piece of it, God commended Jehu because he did assassinate Ahab and Jezebel. However, much more than that happened because Jehu didn't walk with the Lord either. Instead of carrying out a military operation for the sake of the innocent in Israel, he went over the top with bloody violence. And instead of just taking out Ahab and Jezebel, he also took out innocent people with them and around them, those who were worshiping Baal, those uh, who were not worshiping Baal, right? So some who, I guess you could argue from his standpoint, perhaps they were part of the enemy, but some who were clearly not part of the enemy as well. He even went so far as to kill in that valley of Jezreel some of the relatives of King David, a guy named um, 
Ahaziah and 42 other relatives of his in the most bloody, horrific ways. It was meant to be a one-time, last resort uh, assassination on two people who had committed great war crimes and needed to go. It turned into a massacre for the sake of murder from the hand of Jehu. He did it not so much to be obedient to God and to restore the kingdom, but simply to show his power and his rule. So God will now have vengeance on them. You say, well, I thought it was Jehu that did it. It was Jehu. It was the house of Jehu, and it was the entire culture of the people who accepted it. For violence at this point in Israel's history was acceptable. That they had forgotten about this bloody, horrible incident, but God had not. And that that violent culture, which had continued into the very days of Hosea, will now be avenged. Would now be avenged. See, violence is a sign of a wicked culture. Violence tips us off to a very wicked, unhealthy culture filled with other sins. It is like the sin that comes to the top when there is no room because of other sins. It is this ultimate sign of evil. In fact, I want to stop here really quickly and simply preach against the sin of violence because that is what Hosea is preaching against in the name of the Lord. God hates violence. God is anti-violence and God avenges the violent with his own holy, righteous violence. This is a great hope for those who've received violence. If you have, there's been someone who's done violence against you, here's the word of the Lord, Romans 12, 19. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves at the hands of the violent. Don't, don't repay evil for evil, fire for fire. Don't, don't bring violence back on them. Avenge not yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. For those of you out there who've suffered at the hands of the violent, your hope is that God avenges, that he will make all things right through his judgment. You do not have to make that right. You do not have to find a way to explain that. You do not have to somehow settle the score. Let God do it. He will do it. And those who are violent and do not repent will be terrified at the vengeance of God as they deserve. This is what the word of the Lord is for the violent. This is what Hosea's word is for those that are near, at this point, the valley of Jezreel. This is a great comfort for those whom have received violence, but this is also a great threat for those who have done the violence and have not repented. Those of you who will not repent of your violence, you will not be ushered into the kingdom of heaven, but you will receive due reward for your violence in the lake of fire, which is the second death. Those of you who would hit a child, those of you who would slap your wife, for those of you who would get in a bar fight and act like that's somehow funny, for those of you who would murder if you could get away with it, repent of your violence before you receive the judgment of God. God hates violence. And all unrepentant violence will be avenged by the judgment of God.
This is in our Bible. This came to pass. This prophecy comes to pass in 752 B.C., first of all. In 752 B.C., the house of Jehu is cut off. We see this in 2 Kings 15.10, that the last of Jehu's descendants is killed and taken off the throne, just as God said. This prophecy given by Hosea about the valley of Jezreel and the vengeance of God on the house of Jehu is also fulfilled in a second way. But I'm going to tell you about that fulfillment in answer to a good question about God's vengeance. So we're talking about God's vengeance and God's judgment. How exactly does he carry that out? Does like he bust out his own sword, come down and do his own fighting? What's his judgment? What's his vengeance like? Well, we see in this text, somewhat subtly but clearly, that God, God's vengeance, his judgment follows the principle of reaping and sowing. Have you ever heard this phrase, you reap what you sow? That's a Bible phrase. That's actually a biblical principle. You reap what you sow. In fact, it's in our text. Verse 4, Hosea 1, 4, it says, The Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel. Okay, and it came to pass that that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Jezreel actually means to sow, to scatter. This is a valley. Perhaps one would scatter seeds, sow seeds that they might grow something. Big idea is here they have sown violence and they will reap it. See, one of the ways that God shows his justice and his judgment is simply by allowing us to play out our destructive strategies until they come back to haunt us. He has put in place a principle that governs human actions, reactions, and all of nature. You reap what you sow. This is what happened with Israel and the fulfillment of the prophecy. See, one of the Israel's major offenses, what they had sown, was an unholy alliance with Assyria. They had an unholy alliance with them for protection instead of God for protection. They wanted something they could see instead of something they couldn't. Assyria would make this alliance so long as they would worship the gods of Assyria, Baal, which came with a lot of violence. Then, after a while, as Hosea prophesies in his book, Assyria wants to up the taxes due for the protection. Israel doesn't want to pay all these taxes, so they try to do another unholy alliance with another nation and worship those gods in order to fight off Assyria. Assyria finds out, and in 732 BC, history records it, the scriptures record it, Assyria comes in to Israel and basically makes them into a province of their own nation. Basically decimates them, takes away their borders, their rights, their individuality, and makes it what is, I guess, a province, for lack of better words, of Assyria. Right? They have been repaid with violence for their violence. They have reaped what they had sown. This is partly how God's judgment plays out. You reap what you sow. This is not just an Old Testament thing. This is a New Testament thing. Galatians 6, 7, Paul writing to us, the church, in the church age, saved people, Christians, Gentiles. Galatians 6, 7, be not deceived. God is not mocked. You will not get past his security. You will not find a blind spot in his watch, he knows what you've done. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. He that sows to the flesh will reap corruption. He that sows to the spirit, life everlasting. 
So here's this principle of reaping and sowing in the New Testament. Here's what we do with it. Here's the idea. Here's what you need to carry with you. If you are out there, and I know many of you are, you're out there, you are sowing righteousness. But it doesn't seem like anything is happening. There is no good return on this investment. Do not grow weary in well-doing. In fact, that's what the rest of the verse says in verse 9. Let us not grow weary in well-doing, for in due season we will reap if we faint not. God sees what you've sown, and if you've sown in righteousness, prayer, studying the scriptures, community with fellow believers, attempting to fight and hate your own sin and get rid of it, though we will never fully be rid of it in this life, you will reap righteousness. You will reap the power of the Holy Spirit, and eventually you will reap eternal life for your faith in Jesus. For those of you, perhaps there are some who are reaping violence, who are reaping wickedness, who are reaping lust, who are reaping, sorry, sowing rather, greed, who are sowing uh, sin, you are sowing to the flesh, and nothing seems to be happening. There is no clear-cut punishment, there is no violation, there is no fee, there is no, no sentence. You must repent now, for you will reap what you sow. God will not be mocked. And if you don't repent and you've sown in the flesh, you will reap corruption. This is partly how the judgment of God plays out. Do not dig your own valley of Jezreel. Come out from it and walk after your Savior Jesus, loving him with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. For we reap what we sow. We learn more about God's judgment from the second kid Hosea has. The second child is a little girl, and she is named Lo-Ruhama. Hebrew word that literally translated means no mercy. This is a horrific name. This is a terrifying name. This is a, this is a name meant to... To, to disgust you. Why would a father name their daughter Lo-Rohuma, if I'm saying it correctly? Why? Well, God says in Hosea 1, 6 and 7, For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. Verse 7 is an interesting twist, and we're going to talk about this. I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and will save them by the Lord their God. And will not save them by bow, sword, battle, or horses, nor by horsemen. Let's, uh, let's do some digging here. Northern kingdom, no mercy. Southern kingdom, Judah, you will still have mercy. Here's what's going on. Is that Hosea is prophesying to the northern kingdom. But he has written it down and shared it with the southern kingdom. Now, this prophecy took place at a time where the southern kingdom, Judah, was still walking with their Lord, their God. They were receiving mercy. They were accepting mercy. They were thanking God for mercy. Thus, God will give them more mercy. Okay? Northern tribe had all but ignored God, his mercy and all. So one of the things that Hosea is trying to do in just writing this down and giving it to Judah is that he is trying to show them that God had mercy on them while they were willing to receive it. 
You see, the only thing that really cuts off mercy is your unwillingness to receive it. And so he is trying to impart wisdom to Judah to say, hey, run back to the mercy of God. Love mercy, receive mercy, thank God for mercy, pray for mercy. And there's some wisdom in this for us in 2020. Your prayers should be not for what you deserve. Luckily, God is so kind, he will not give us that for those who believe. Your prayers should be for mercy. You should see your gifts, the gifts God has given you as gifts of mercy. Thank God for mercy. Keep begging for mercy. For those of, uh, that, uh, that are against you, your enemies, pray for mercy for them. For your children, pray for mercy for them. For your spouse, mercy for them. For your church, mercy for us. Mercy, that's what we want. And we can receive mercy, more and more mercy. His mercy never runs out on those who want it. But the problem with northern Israel, they didn't want it. They didn't thank him. They didn't care. In fact, he kept giving them mercy even while they were worshiping Baal, and they got so far from the God of their fathers, they thought it was Baal giving them the mercy and thanked Baal for it, but didn't even give thought to the real God of mercy. We actually see this alluded to in chapter 2 of Hosea. If you want to turn there for a brief moment, we'll read it and I'll explain it. Hosea 2, 4 through 5, 4 and 5, and then also in verse 8, you see this played out, right? This idea that they've gone to Baal, but God gives them mercy, and they don't even thank him. They don't care. We see this. Uh, Hosea 2, 4, Hosea speaking, says, I will not have mercy on her children, speaking of the children of Gomer, for they are the children of whoredoms, meaning it is likely that they are not even Hosea's real kids because she's been sleeping around and cheating on him. Verse 5, it says, For their mother hath played the harlot. In other words, she is a prostitute in the temple worship of Baal. She conceived them by doing shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers, and they will give me bread and my water and my wool and my flax, my oil, my drink. Look down at verse 8. Hosea says, She did not know. I gave her corn and wine and oil and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. Let me explain what's going on with Hosea and Gomer and then God and Israel. Hosea and Gomer are a demonstration of what's going on between God and Israel. So we'll start with them. Here's the imagery. Hosea's wife, Gomer, leaves each night. This is like the imagery, so I'm illustrating. And she goes off to cheat on Hosea with other men. She comes home in the morning, and let's just say, for sake of illustration, on the porch is silver and gold and bread and water and wool and clothing and blankets and necessities. And what's going on and what is implied is that Gomer believes that these blessings are coming from the men she slept with in Baal's temple as a temple prostitute. And so she goes back to those men for more relationship, thinking it's them who put those things out for her. When in reality, it was Hosea loving faithfully his unfaithful wife, leaving her gifts because he's still willing to stay with her, stick with her, love her, forgive her, and even bless her, have mercy on her. He's trying and, 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 and to no avail at this point, win her back. That's what's really going on with Hosea and Gomer. This illustrates what's going on with God and Israel. Israel is sinning. They are living in sin. They are worshiping Baal. 
Yet God is still providing for them silver and gold and bread and water and corn and oil and wealth. But they have so severely taken his gifts for granted, they assume Baal is providing all those things. So they take their grains and they take their silver and they take their wealth and go back to the temple of Baal and sacrifice it to him as a way to say thank you and to praise Baal. When the whole time, Baal's not blessing them at all. It's God who's giving them all this mercy. But they don't recognize him, thank him, or care. They take it totally for granted and run after their gods, the foreign gods of Assyria. So how does God judge? Well, part of his judgment here is he simply is going to stop providing it. When we think of God's judgment, many times we think of God bringing destruction. Many times, particularly in the Old Testament of the Bible, other places as well, it's more of that he stops mercy. He withholds the things we have been getting from him the whole time. And we destroy ourselves. Baal is going to fail them. Baal will not produce one drop of rain. He will not grow one crop. He will not mine one ounce of silver for them. And then they will know that mercy was coming from God once they taste this judgment. He says, call her no mercy, for mercy is over. It's time for judgment. A third child comes, and it teaches us one more aspect of God's judgment. The name of this child is... In essence, not my people. And it shows us the ultimate sign of judgment from God, and that is separation from God. We see this in verse 8 and 9. It says, Now when she had weaned Loruhamah, she conceived and bare a son. So this is kid number three. And God said, Call his name Loamai, which means not my people, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. This is separation from God. God. This is like naming your child hell. This is like naming your child outcast. This is like naming your child not mine, literally. God says we're separate. He said, what's so bad about sin? Sin goes against the nature of God, the character of God, and it goes against the law of God, and thus it separates us from the relationship with God we were created to have. That's what's so bad about sin. Sin separates us from God. And to make matters worse, we enjoy that separation to some degree in sin. To some degree, we want the leash to be loosened. We want to be kicked out of the garden so that at least we can do whatever we want and eat from any tree we see. That's what's going on with the people of the northern kingdom in Israel. Is that God is saying, you're not my people. Since you don't want to be, I won't force it. I won't be your God. Since you don't claim me, I won't make you. And this is actually God's judgment. In the New Testament, we see the same judgment explained for those who are rebellious and those who are religious. For the rebellious, we see it in Romans 1, plain as day. 
In Romans 1, Paul is writing about those who would disregard God, not glorify Him as God, and not thank Him for being God. They will go after debased desires, their lust of the flesh, and Paul says God's judgment on them is that He will give them up to those things to consume them. Their rebellion will be allowed. And in their rebellion, they will be destroyed. Additionally, this is a judgment pronounced on the religious. Jesus himself, our Savior, talks about this to religious people in Matthew 7. In Matthew 7, it talks about the end, the judgment. And there comes people before the throne of Jesus, and they're very religious. Rebellion is one enemy of the gospel. Another enemy of the gospel is religion. And religion is where you do the right things for the wrong reasons. You're trying to earn righteousness, earn favor with God, earn a better standing than others, be worshipped by others, please men, rather than God, through your acts of piety. And at that last judgment, that great white throne, there'll be some who come and say, didn't we prophesy in your name and in your name cast out devils? Didn't we do many wonderful works and miracles? But they're bringing forth religious offerings, not looking to the Lamb, who was the perfect offering. And he will say, you're not my people. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. He will let them be religious. That is part of the judgment of God. This would actually be the ultimate aspect of the of God, that we crave separation from Him. He comes after us with mercy, with grace, with love and conviction and the Spirit to pull us in. And as, as many times as He does, for some we say no, and eventually He lets go. This is the judgment of God. So we got this prophet, Hosea, with an unfaithful wife. He's got three sons uh, two sons and a daughter, rather, with the most unfortunate baby names on planet Earth, all of which are meant to demonstrate God's judgment, the people that he is preaching to. However, there's a shock ending. There's a twist in the story. There's a surprise as much as all this judgment talk, these baby names, are meant to jolt them, to awaken them, to strike fear and disgust in them, as much as this is meant to shock them, there's something more shocking that comes at the end of the chapter that comes through Hosea. Something more awakening, something more jolting is part of this chapter. You see, the most shocking, awakening, jolting part of this chapter is not all the judgment it's the fact that Hosea sticks with his wife as a faithful husband and fathers these children to a hopeful future. The shock is this promise of restoration. For us, in our culture now, the judgment is the shock, and we think the restoration is a given. For every other Bible student up till our century, our culture, our time period, for the original audience, believe me, the shock was not the judgment. That was obvious and deserved, easy to understand. The shock is restoration. The shock is God's love, His mercy, and His great grace to bring about restoration to a people who don't deserve it. 
God is still the father of Israel, still the king of Israel. That's the jolting part. Right after Hosea pronounces all these judgments, lo am I, lo ruhamah, Jezreel, like in the same breath, as if to bring about a great, glorious, happy, wonderful, hopeful twist in the story. Like in the same sentence that he prophesies all this judgment, he prophesies a beautiful restoration. In fact, the book of Hosea, even scripture as a whole, speaks of God in this way. That he's not simply a God of judgment, but he's also a God of restoration. Look at verse 10 and 11. I mean, this is beautiful. I mean, this, this is poetry. This is art. This is everything good wrapped up into this hopeful pronouncement. Right in the same breath as judgment comes this. He goes, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, echoing the promise to Abraham, which cannot be measured or numbered. It'll come to pass that in this place right here where I said to them, you're not my people, it'll be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. Then shall the children of Judah and the children of Israel be gathered together. This whole national split will cease and they will appoint for themselves one head or one king and they shall come up out of the land as they came up out of Egypt. They will come up out of sin for great shall be the day of Jezreel. That through all this judgment will come repentance, will come belief, and will come full restoration by the power of love and grace of God. Beautiful prophecy and it is fulfilled in two beautiful places. This is fulfilled in the New Testament, the life of Jesus and the church. This is fulfilled in Revelation, the end of the age and the restoration of all things. We see this fulfilled in the New Testament, the church age. Jesus comes and he takes judgment for all people on himself on the cross. He takes all that we have sown and he reaps it. And all that he has sown in righteousness, we reap. He comes and he gives mercy to people who don't ask for it. And he takes judgment from people on whose back it was uh, born. He comes and takes the judgment for the nation of Israel in the south and in the north, for the Gentiles of the world. He comes, he takes judgment, dies in our place for our sin. He then rises again, opening a door to a new world, a restored kingdom in the end. And we see through the book of Acts in the church that there's people from the southern kingdom, Jerusalem itself, people from the northern kingdom and all manner of Gentiles from all around the world coming into one people with one head appointed, one king, Jesus. And they're more united than they ever were in the borders of some nation. Paul preached that as the restoration prophesied in Hosea. He even quotes Hosea in Romans 9, 24 and 26. He says, here's the glorious fulfillment of that promise. He says, even us whom God hath called, not just Jews only, but also Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people, which were not my people. And I will call them beloved, or those who have had mercy, who were not beloved. 
And it will come to pass in the place where it was said unto them, you're not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. The church starts in Jerusalem, right where they were called, not my people. It starts in that area, that nation. It goes out to the ends of the world. Gentiles are grafted in. Gentiles were never called the people of God. Now they are the people of God. Peter, the apostle, also preaches the church as the fulfillment to this prophecy. 1 Peter 2.9, he quotes Hosea, particularly after that in verse 10, but you, speaking to Jews and Gentiles, are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you would show forth the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In times past, you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not obtained mercy, and now you have obtained mercy. Quoting Hosea. Here's the idea. The apostles of the New Testament age saw Jesus as the appointed head, his people as the united kingdom, and his resurrection as a hope for full restoration, a full dismissal of all of our sin and the curse with it, and a full return to something even more glorious than the Garden of Eden. A return to the way we were created to be, judgment-free. Jesus makes that happen. Our God is a God of restoration. This is also fulfilled in the end, the end of the age, the age of restoration, the last two chapters of the Bible where God makes all things new. Remember, the prophecy is that they would be united, that they'd have one king. The prophecy is that all things would be restored as to the way that they should be. See if you can pick that up in these verses in the end where this prophecy will ultimately find its fulfillment. Revelation 21.1, I saw a new heaven, new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away and there was no more sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, fully united, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Not like Hosea and Gomer, but in perfect unity. I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He'll dwell with them. They shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there will be no more death, judgment, no more sorrow, judgment, no more crying, judgment. Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. He that sat upon the throne, that is Jesus, writes, Behold, I make all things new. Even to the scriptures as a whole, there is a shock ending, a twist in the story, a surprise ending, where you have 65 books of people deserving judgment. And in the end, Jesus, through his blood, death, resurrection, and Holy Spirit, restores it all, though they don't deserve it. So that they could walk with him as a husband and wife, covenant relationship, judgment-free for all eternity. There is great restoration for those who will believe. As great as the judgment is, for those who will not believe, the restoration is far greater for those who will. Hosea promises who he's writing to, these leaders of Judah who are in the middle of all their sin and the consequences of it, following after the footsteps of that northern kingdom, doing the same things, worshiping other gods. He says, great will be the day of Jezreel. You're going to go through judgment. 
But the judgment won't have the final word. You will believe. You will repent. And eventually there will be a mass of people united under Jesus in glorious relationship restored to him. We've been talking about nations. We've been talking about peoples. I want to bring this down to an individual level. I'm going to give it a shot. It's going to be messy, but I'll try. Say, how does this play out like this judgment restoration idea? How does this play out like on an individual level? Well, how it plays out is though we judgment, though we may seem like we're headed for judgment, through Jesus, we're actually given restoration, no matter what we've done. We've had a couple people in our church, or at least that are part of our church, overdose in the last few weeks, had a funeral here, I believe yesterday, for someone who overdosed, a Christian who overdosed and died. A couple weeks ago, we had a case like that. It was a guy from Overcomers, his name was Joe. And he came off and on for a while as he went through the program and through the program called, I believe it's called Homes of Hope, and he followed Jesus. He had a background in drug abuse, came to Christ, repented, believed. But after some of his recovery took place, life got back to normal, he got back around the wrong friends and was tempted again and sinned again. After all this training, after all this victory after all this grace after all this mercy he even had friends coming to him in the midst of his relapse saying let's go back to the program let me help you we will figure this out i know the landlord tried to help give him more time in the house till he found a job after all that he fell into temptation one last time and he overdosed he was with three other people who over who were using that night as well and they actually left him on the side of the road because they were afraid to call the ambulance and get in trouble for their drug use. So here he is on the side of the road with an overdose, he passes away. Now, to the human eye, you might say, is he reaping what he's sown? To the human eye, you might say, is he not receiving mercy? Is this judgment? And here's the beautiful twist at the end of the story, according to the promises of God found in Jesus, that he believed and he repented, and he came to Christ, and all his sin, past, present, future, washed away, so that the answer is no. He is not in judgment. He's in full, glorious, beautiful restoration. Yes, he sinned, but so do you. His sin just comes with a more dire consequence than yours. Your jealousy, your rage, your insecurity doesn't kill you. His temptations killed him. That's the only difference between you and him. And like him, you, though you, will continue to struggle with rebellion and religion. Your belief and your faith in Christ, his blood is enough to guarantee that your judgment will pass over you and you will not reap what you've sown. You will not end with no mercy, but rather you will be given glorious restoration, a shock ending, a surprise ending. You will get all that you don't deserve and none of what you do. This is the beauty of God, the glory of God. This is the wonder of being called His people. So what do we do? I'll give you this one application point. You find it in chapter 2, verse 1. Here's our application. We'll keep it short and sweet. Say... To your brethren, am I, or am I, which means my people. Say to your sisters, ruhama, which means mercy. That's actually the end of chapter 1. 
in the sense of the thought of chapter 1. In verse 2, Hosea moves on to something else. So Hosea marries a prostitute, names three kids after God's judgment, horrific, scary names. And then by the end of the chapter says, but God can and will restore all who believe. So say to your brothers, you are God's people. Say to your sisters, you have mercy. And our application is never forget the surprise ending. Never get used to the surprise ending, the restoration. Celebrate the escape God has provided from judgment through Jesus. And we do that by looking at each other and reminding each other of our identity. Judgment free, restoration full. We look at each other and we remind ourselves, hey, I know you're depressed and anxious and scared and nervous, but you are God's people. And some of you need to hear that this morning. And for those of you who are guilt-ridden and ashamed because you know your sin, Jesus paid for the guilt and shame, and you have mercy. And some of you need to hear that this morning. And the beautiful things it does end with this morning, but it goes on and on and on. When our relationship with God got rocky in Genesis 3, there were two themes that were given to us in our relationship with God. Judgment and restoration. And the beautiful beautiful truth that Hosea is teaching these people in the middle of idolatry and war alliances with unholy nations is that restoration is an option. So today, choose restoration. I'll pray and we'll sing.